couple of weeks ago, we began to look at this part of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. And that sermon was really, you could say, a kind of warm-up to get to this one today, because today we're really going to come to the part of the passage that has gripped me, that has fascinated me, that has challenged me over the years. We're going to talk about the yoke of Jesus. Sometimes people wonder, what's that thing around the pastor's neck? It's called a stole, and it's actually supposed to symbolize the yoke of Jesus. So you've got a visual reminder of that yoke here before you today. The yoke of Jesus, that's what we want to talk about, but I want to set the stage, which means reviewing for just a moment. I want to talk about Matthew's gospel as a whole and then focus in on some things in this passage that will help us better understand what's happening with the yoke. The Gospel of Matthew retells the history of Israel through the life of Jesus. It's as if Israel's history is being relived through Jesus. Uh, perhaps it would be better to say Jesus is the true Israel in Matthew's Gospel. And that's why the story of his ministry tracks with the story of Israel. But this is what's interesting. At each turn in Israel's history, if you go back and read the Old Testament, at each turn in Israel's history, Israel got it wrong. And at each turn in Jesus' ministry, Jesus gets it right. Matthew has written his gospel to show us that Jesus is the new and true Israel. Indeed, not only that, but Israel is, I should say Jesus is, the God of Israel. He's not only Israel done right, Israel lived out right, doing what Israel was supposed to do, but he's also Israel's God incarnate. Israel's God embodied in human flesh. Let me just give you a few highlights, kind of an overview of Matthew's gospel. Matthew opens with a genealogy, and that genealogy reminds us of the chronologies that we find in the book of Genesis. So beginning of Matthew's gospel, a lot like the beginning of the Old Testament. Even in Matthew chapter 1, you've got a man named Joseph who has revelatory dreams. In the book of Genesis, you've got a man named Joseph who has revelatory dreams. Then move from Genesis into Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh sought to kill the Hebrew baby boys. What do you have in Matthew chapter 2? Herod, a new Pharaoh, tries to kill baby Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, Israel escapes Pharaoh through the Red Sea crossing, which is called a baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus has his baptism in the Jordan River. Israel then wanders in the wilderness and faces various tests. That corresponds to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, being tested, being tempted by Satan. Then Israel receives the law on Mount Sinai. Jesus, as if he were a new and greater Moses, goes up on the, the mountain and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. He gives his disciples the law of the new covenant. In Matthew chapters 8 through 10, many of the events in Jesus' life correspond to the next phase in Israel's history recorded in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So, for example, Israel in those books rebels against God ten times. Jesus, by contrast, performs ten healing miracles in these chapters of Matthew's Gospel. The Israelites sent twelve spies into the Promised Land to scout it out. Jesus sends twelve apostles on a preaching tour of the land to scout it out, as it were, in Matthew chapter 10. Then in Matthew chapters 11 through 13, 
That part of Jesus' ministry corresponds to the period of Israel's history that runs really from Joshua, who brings the people rest in the land, all the way through Solomon, who reveals wisdom. Rest and revelation, of course, are big themes in our passage in Matthew chapter 11. Joshua's all about rest. Solomon's all about revealing wisdom. At the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus compares himself to David. There's a plot hatched to kill David by Saul, and there's a plot hatched to kill Jesus by the Pharisees. David's son Solomon gave wisdom to Israel in the form of parables, and in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus starts to speak in parables. He's tracking right along. These chapters reveal Jesus as a new Joshua, as a greater David, as a greater Solomon. In fact, he even says at the end of chapter 12, one greater than Solomon is here. In chapters 14 through 17, there are all kinds of connections with what we could call the early prophetic period of Israel's history, especially Elijah and Elisha. And so the miracles that Jesus does, things like food miracles or water miracles, correspond to events and miracles in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Then in chapters 18 to 22 of Matthew, there are all kinds of themes from the later prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Themes from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other later prophets are now in play. And so, for example, when Jesus cleanses the table, the, the temple, uh, and overturns the, the, the tables of the money changers in the temple, his words echo the words of Jeremiah, who called the temple in his day a den of thieves. Jesus uses the same words as Jeremiah, as if he's a new Jeremiah. In the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus announces a coming judgment that he will bring on the temple, it echoes the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel also announced the destruction of the temple in his day, and even said he would be the one to come in judgment against the temple. And then the final part of Matthew's gospel corresponds to the final stage of Old Covenant Israel's history as recorded in the scriptures of the Old Testament. What happens to Israel? Israel undergoes the curse of exile and then resurrection when she is restored to her land. She goes through the death, the curse of exile, and then she experiences a kind of resurrection as she is restored to the Holy Land, to the land of promise. Well, what happens to Jesus as we come to the end of Matthew's gospel? He undergoes the ultimate curse of exile as a substitute for his people when he is crucified outside of the city and even in some way cast away from the presence of his father. And then, of course, he undergoes the ultimate restoration in his resurrection as he comes back from the dead and blessing replaces curse. In fact, it's really, really interesting if you want to see how this gets capped off. The Hebrew Old Testament, our English Old Testament, has the books arranged in a different order. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, it ends with 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36 ends with Cyrus's decree. Cyrus, the Gentile emperor, says this. This is how the Hebrew Old Testament ended. These would have been the final words of the Old Testament in Jesus' day. This is what Cyrus says. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Go, therefore, whoever is among his people, and may the Lord your God be with you. Now you know why Matthew's gospel ends the way it does, with the Great Commission 
those words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 are almost identical to the language that Cyrus used at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of 2 Chronicles. The Great Commission, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, so it goes beyond what Cyrus could say, but it's very similar. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. He says, for I am with you to the end of the age. Put Cyrus's temple commission right next to Jesus' commission, and you can only conclude that Jesus is the world's true and greater Cyrus. He is the world's true emperor, the world's true king. And we will build God's house as we disciple the nations. That's what it really means to disciple the nations. It means we're building a temple, we're building a house for God. And further, Cyrus said, as you go, may God be with you. Jesus says, as you go, I will be with you. Jesus puts himself in the place of Yahweh, in the place of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who promises to be with his people until the end of the age, until this work is complete. And so we can say, not only is Jesus Israel, he is also Yahweh incarnate. He is the Lord God of Israel in human flesh. He is Israel's God in human form. He is the true Israelite, and he is also the true and living God of Israel. As true Israelite, Jesus is a greater Moses and a greater Joshua. He is a greater David and a greater Solomon. He is a greater prophet. He does what Israel should have done. He becomes what Israel should have been. He fulfills our side of the covenant towards God as a perfectly obedient man. Reliving Israel's history, but instead of getting it wrong like Israel did, he gets it right at every turn. But not only that, not only is he the true Israelite, he is also Israel's God. And as Israel's God, he is the full revelation of who God is. And he fulfills God's side of the covenant as well, doing what only God can do to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins and to bring in a new creation. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, and he comes back to that at the very end. And every passage in Matthew's gospel will make a whole lot more sense if you keep this in mind, that Jesus is the true Israel, and he is the revelation of Israel's God. That's what Matthew is showing us throughout his gospel. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. What's going on in these verses? Well, Jesus promises to bring judgment. He will destroy those cities that have rejected him. Despite his mighty works and the wisdom he shared in those cities, these cities have rejected him. And so he says, judgment will fall. It will be worse for you on the day of judgment than it will be for Sodom. Just as Joshua drove out the Canaanites so the people of Israel could have rest in the land, so Jesus will bring judgment to the wicked and rest to his people. He makes a comparison with Tyre and Sidon. Go back to Solomon's day, Tyre actually became an ally of the Israelites and helped the Israelites build the temple. But then Tyre fell away and faced judgment. And so Jesus says it will be for the cities he's been ministering to, Chorazin and Bethsaida. These were once faithful cities, but now have shown themselves to be hard-hearted, idolatrous, Canaanite-like cities. 
They've revealed this by how they have treated Jesus, and thus they must be judged as Canaanite cities. What Joshua did to the cities of Canaan, Jesus will do to these cities in the land. And really, we could move from there to say, so it will be for any city, even in our day, that has a faithful gospel ministry, but rejects it. See, it's really important to understand this warning, this woe that Jesus pronounced over Bethsaida and Chorazin, that woe, that warning applies to cities in our day as well. When Jesus says these cities will be judged because they have rejected him, how many American cities could this describe? Or it might be easier to ask if there are any cities it does not describe. See, Jesus walked and talked and his voice could be heard. And his works could be seen in these cities, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Well, the voice of Jesus can be heard in our cities today. His mighty works can be seen in our cities today. Jesus' voice can be heard in our city, in Birmingham, Alabama. Jesus' voice can be heard through the many faithful gospel preachers in this city. And there's no doubt Jesus has done many mighty works in the city of Birmingham. Many have had their sins forgiven. Many have been raised from death in sins and trespasses to new life in him. A mighty work of spiritual resurrection. Now there are a lot of faithful Christians in our city, no doubt. There are many faithful Christians and many faithful churches in our city, thanks be to God. But you know what else we have in our city? We have many who are hypocrites, many who are apostates who have fallen away, many who openly reject the ministry of Jesus. The warning Jesus pronounces here applies to Birmingham. The Bible Belt's not going to be exempt from what Jesus teaches here. Indeed, it's just the reverse. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Our region is known as the Bible Belt because we have so much Bible, so many churches, supposedly so many Christians. But that means we have a great deal of accountability for what we have been given. And I will tell you this, as people who want to be faithful to Jesus, as you and I do, as people who want to live for Jesus and serve Jesus and evangelize for Jesus, part of our calling as faithful Christians is to warn our city of Jesus' judgment. Our city is not immune to the judgment of Jesus. Jesus knows how to destroy an idolatrous city, just like Joshua destroyed Jericho. Jesus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD because it rejected him. Part of our calling as God's people, as disciples of Jesus, is to announce Jesus' conquest of our city. To announce that every knee will bow, every knee in Birmingham, Alabama, will bow before the Lord Jesus willingly or forcibly, but every knee will bow. Those who will not bow before him in faith and humble submission will face his wrath. They will face his woe. That's what Jesus is announcing here. And we bring that same announcement, that same declaration. But this is what's so interesting. Jesus has just, you could say, ratcheted up the fear by announcing this judgment. What does he do next? Jesus then moves to show us how to escape this judgment, how to find rest rather than wrath, how to find life rather than death. And it comes through the grace of the Father as he reveals his Son to those whom he chooses. 
And when the Son is revealed to you by the Father, the Son in turn reveals the Father to you. So the Father reveals the Son to us, and the Son in turn reveals the Father to us. This revelation of Father and Son comes as the Gospel is announced. This revelation of Father and Son simply happens as we tell the Gospel story of the Father sending His Son into the world to redeem a people. We reveal the Father and the Son. The heart of the Father and the Son is revealed anytime we spread the gospel, speak the gospel, share the gospel. And Jesus makes it clear here who will receive it. Yes, it is those chosen by the Father, but that manifests itself in humility as we humble ourselves and become like little children as we see our neediness and our utter dependence upon the grace of God for everything. And so Jesus goes on, he says, this invitation to come and find rest in him, to find wholeness and salvation and freedom in him, this invitation is to all who are burdened, to all who are weighed down, to all who are heavy laden. Well, what is weighing them down more than anything else? It is a sense of their sin and their guilt. It's coming to know what you deserve because of your sin. When you're heavy laden in that way, that weight, that burden, drives you to Jesus. It's designed to drive you to Jesus that you might find rest, that you might be released and relieved of those burdens. And so Jesus says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, what kind of rest is this? Remember, we're in the part of Matthew's gospel that corresponds to Joshua giving the Israelites rest in the land. So really, the model here is understanding what did it mean for Joshua to give the people rest in the land of promise? When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, that's what's in the background. When Joshua gave the people rest, it meant he gave them victory, victory over the Canaanites. It means they were able to enter into the presence of God and receive God's gifts and find refreshment in the presence of God. Rest has to do with sanctuary, with Sabbath, with coming before God. The book of Joshua calls attention to this rest again and again. So Joshua chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, Joshua says, Remember Moses said, The Lord would provide you a place of rest and give you the land. The Lord will give you rest as you take possession of the land. That meant driving out the Canaanites and their false worship and setting up a place of true worship. Victory in warfare, refreshment in worship. That's what this rest is all about. Joshua chapter 11 verse 23 summarizes the conquest. Joshua took the whole land and gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. The land had rest. The Canaanites were defeated. There's victory in warfare. And they began to worship God in the land. It was a kind of sanctuary for them. They got to find refreshment in the presence of God. But this is what's interesting. Yes, Joshua did give them rest. The land was a sanctuary for them, a place where God was with them and where they worshiped God and enjoyed his blessing. It was a kind of renewed garden of Eden. But at the same time, this rest was compatible with all kinds of ongoing activity, like work, like worship, even like warfare, which did continue, even after Joshua gives them rest in the land. The warfare continues. See, when Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest, he says, come and rest. 
But he's also saying, come and get to work. Only come now and get to work under the blessing and favor of God. See, this rest was not a state of inaction. It's not a state of inactivity. Rather, it's a state of blessing as they seek to act faithfully and obediently, as they live under God's rule and with his favor. It's a very active rest. Their activity of work and worship in the land is called rest because as they go about these things, they are covered with the blessing of God. The compassion and favor of God rest upon them as they seek to work and worship God as they continue in this warfare. And that has to shape how we understand what Jesus means when he calls us into his rest. He does not mean there's no work for us to do once we've entered his rest. Rather, the rest that we find in Christ, the rest that is is in view here, means that we work and worship and wage warfare under the blessing of God, covered with his grace and mercy. And here's how we know this is the kind of act of rest Jesus has in view. He says he will give us rest, and then he immediately says, right right after saying he will give us rest, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. This is a kind of rest that goes along with a yoke. It's a kind of rest that we enter into as we continue to learn from Jesus, as we learn from Jesus who he is, what he's done, and what we are to do. It's a kind of rest that is fully compatible with all kinds of activity. Even as we enter this rest, we wear a yoke. So important to understand this. For the Christian, there is a yoke to wear, even as we live in Jesus' rest. Now, do you know what a yoke is? We're not agrarian for the most part. We don't farm the way uh, people then did, so we may not be familiar with this. What is a yoke? A yoke is for doing work. So a yoke would be used to harness two animals together. So the animals would be joined together in relationship by the yoke so they could perform some task as a team, so they could work together. So there could be synergy between the two animals so that they could work together to accomplish some task. So see, when Jesus says, come to me and rest, he's simultaneously saying, come to me and get to work. They get to work in a whole new way. Come to me and find rest. But as you come and find this rest, a yoke is going to be put upon you. And this means you're going to, there's going to be labor. There's going to be work to do. In fact, one thing that I find really interesting in the way this passage is worded, that what Jesus says here, Jesus assumes that everybody is already wearing some yoke. Wearing a yoke is inescapable. Everybody's wearing a yoke. As one of your own prophets has said, you've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. You cannot escape that. You already have a yoke on. What Jesus wants us to do is exchange that yoke for his yoke. And the reason he wants us to give up that yoke and take on his yoke is because that yoke is crushing and his yoke, by contrast, is light and easy. Other yokes will crush us with their weight. By comparison, the yoke of Jesus is light and easy. It's restful and refreshing. Jesus' yoke is not going to grind you down the way other yokes 
do. And I think the easiest way to see this is simply to make a comparison, to compare different yokes. Consider some of the yokes we are tempted to carry and the people around us are carrying, and then look at how the yoke of Jesus is different. So what I want to do is give you three examples of false yokes, three examples of heavy and burdensome yokes that you can find in Scripture, and then three aspects of Jesus' yoke that we also find in Scripture. So what are some false yokes, some, some heavy crushing yokes that people wear? Well, uh, I, I would put it to you this way to start. The first false yoke, and really the broadest category of a false yoke, is an idol, a false god. If you're in service to a false god, you are yoked to that false god, you are yoked to that idol, and that idol will destroy you and crush you. In Numbers chapter 25, the people of Israel yoked themselves to an idol. Go read Numbers chapter 25. Israel yoked himself to Baal a Peor. We're told very early on in that chapter. And this kindled the Lord's anger. It kindled Moses' anger. It kindled the anger of Phineas. And so those who took up Baal's yoke, those who yoked themselves to Baal, who joined themselves to Baal in this way, they were executed. That yoke did not lead to rest. It led to death. Any idol you yoke yourself to will destroy you. And it does not matter if it's the idol of a false religion like Allah or if it's the idol of a false philosophy like Frederick Nietzsche or Scientology. It doesn't matter if it's the idol of the self where you just live to please yourself all the time where that becomes your, your, your top priority, your highest goal in life, just to please yourself all the time, or if it's the idol of some aspect of life that you absolutize into a God, thinking it can make you happy and fulfill you. There are lots of examples of this kind of thing in Scripture. There are some people who yoke themselves to mammon. They turn money into a God. Money becomes mammon for them. But what happens when you yoke yourself to mammon? You are crushed by it. Because mammon is not a reliable or trustworthy God. Mammon is a cruel taskmaster. Serving mammon will ruin your life. Mammon is a rival to Jesus. Jesus says that. You can't serve God and mammon. They're rivals vying for your attention, your affection, your loyalty. But if you serve mammon, if you yoke yourself to mammon, you're going to be destroyed. Same with those who yoke themselves to career success and status, who make that the be-all and end-all. not saying that's bad in itself any more than money would be bad in itself, but when it becomes an idol, it becomes a heavy and crushing yoke. When career success or status becomes your God and you've yoked yourself to that idol, what's going to happen? It's going to wear you down. You will work yourself to death because that's a God, the God of career success and status. That is a God that can never be satisfied. And so when you make your career or your status into a god, it's going to crush you. And, and at some point, if you're serving that god, you're going to fail. You're going to fail in your career in some kind of way. And then what? Because your career can't forgive you. Your career can't die for your sins. Your career can't take the guilt and the shame away. See, all idols are unforgiving gods. All idols are yokes that will leave you empty and broken. Here's another one, addiction. Addictions are idols that people will yoke themselves to. And any kind of addiction is a crushing 
yoke that will destroy you. The person who is addicted, let's say to alcohol or to drugs, thinks he is free, but he is really enslaved to a heavy and deceptive yoke. People who get addicted to some kind of substance in this way are usually trying to numb themselves to regret or numb themselves to responsibilities they don't think they can fulfill, but it doesn't work. It never works out. You really can't numb yourself. The yoke of addiction is crushing. Paul addresses idolatrous yokes from another angle in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, some of the dangers that can come with yoking yourself Uh, in unequal ways is actually what Paul says. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or light with darkness or Christ with Belial? See, getting into too close or too deep of a relationship with unbelievers, like say if you're a Christian, marrying a non-Christian would be one example of this, yoking yourself unequally, what's that going to do? The lines between Christian and non-Christian, the line between Christ and the counterfeit gods, those lines will be blurred. And Paul's saying, if you unequally yoke yourself in this way, you're going to get pulled into destructive sin patterns. It's going to be another yoke that weighs you down. And so he says, do not get into any entangling alliances with the world that would subvert your loyalty and service to Christ and that would harm your witness to the gospel. Don't dabble in idolatry. Don't betray your faith or dilute your faith by yoking yourself to those who despise your God. That's what Paul's saying there in 2 Corinthians 6. Obviously, Paul doesn't mean we have to avoid all contact with unbelievers. That would be impossible. Indeed, Paul himself lived much of his life building relationships with unbelievers so he could evangelize them. He befriended them, but he did not yoke himself to them. There is a distinction to be made there. Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 6, don't yoke yourself to non-Christians in such a way where they can control you, where they have leverage over you. So that's one way of thinking about a false yoke that Scripture gives us the yoke of idolatry, joining yourself to a false god. But there's a second way people can be wrongly yoked, and we find this one in the Old Testament as well. I will call this the yoke of statism. The state can become a yoke that enslaves us. God designed the state to be a minister of justice, of his justice, but the state can become an enslaving force a heavy yoke. The ultimate biblical example of this, of course, is Pharaoh, who put the yoke of slavery on Israel. And it's really interesting to trace out the book of Exodus because it fits really well with what's going on here in Matthew chapter 11. The book of Exodus starts with Israel under Pharaoh's heavy, burdensome yoke. Pharaoh tells them to make bricks without straw as they build a house for Pharaoh. Maybe they're building the pyramids. We don't know. But they're building a house For Pharaoh, by the end of the book, they've been set free from that yoke. They have come under the Lord's yoke, and they build the Lord's house, the tabernacle, which becomes a place of rest for his people. And so the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, moves from slavery to Sabbath, from a heavy, crushing yoke to a light and easy yoke. That's the trajectory of the book of Exodus. That's how it works. There's a yoke of slavery that weighs the people down. They must be set free from it. Elsewhere in Scripture, when people are under oppressive rulers, it is called a yoke. 
great example of this is 1 Kings chapter 12, where the word yoke is used eight times to describe the heavy burden that Solomon laid on the Israelites. Solomon had become Pharaoh-like in how he ruled the people of Israel. In 1 Kings 12, like Matthew 11, there's this contrast between a heavy and a light yoke. But there it's Solomon who actually puts the heavy yoke on the people of God. And so in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is really presenting himself as one better than Solomon, one greater than Solomon. He does not weigh us down with unbearable burdens that oppress us. In fact, it's really interesting in the case of Solomon, the heavy yoke he put on the people, his son Rehoboam, so the next generation, the next king, his son Rehoboam, intensified that heavy yoke. And what happened, it led to the division of Israel. The nation split in two. Judah, the southern tribes of Israel went one way, Israel another way. It led to division. And this is really important. It shows us that heavy political and economic yokes destroy unity in any society. That is a principle that our civil rulers in our day should pay attention to. Heavy yokes that crush people ultimately divide societies. They bring division. But we should also recognize this. Sometimes people prefer these heavy yokes, the heavy yoke of statism. Uh, think of the Israelites who, after they were set free from Pharaoh's slavery, actually wanted to go back to it. They wanted to come back under Pharaoh's yoke. They found the responsibilities of freedom were a lot to bear. And maybe slavery to Pharaoh was preferable. They were so demented, so misguided, so foolish. They had a slave mentality, and so they preferred slavery to freedom. They preferred the heavy yoke to the light yoke. And today, we see the same thing, to be honest. We see the same thing in our society. Wokeness, socialism, these are heavy, enslaving yokes. Wokeness is crushing. It's crushing people. Socialism, we've got all kinds of examples from history where it crushes people. But people can be so foolish. They can have such a slave mentality. They can, so, they can be so bent on destroying themselves that they demand these heavy yokes be put around their necks. And so what they should be fleeing from, they actually embrace to their own destruction. Here is a third false yoke we find in Scripture. If statism comes mostly from the left, this one uh, perhaps comes from the other end of the spectrum. This yoke is corruptions of God's law or perverse interpretations of the law or additions to the law that make it into a heavy yoke. It was a tradition for a teacher to speak of putting his yoke on his disciples. That's how rabbis would speak, for example. The students of the rabbi would put on his yoke, his teaching. As they learned from him, his teaching would be the yoke that his students would bear. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees put their yoke on the people. They claimed it was God's yoke. But in reality, as Jesus shows us, they had substituted their own word for God's word. So the Pharisees would say, hey, wear this yoke, you people of Israel. This is the yoke God wants you to wear, when in reality, it's a yoke they themselves have devised. They have created these rules and commandments. They're man-made traditions, and they're putting these burdens, this yoke, on the people. 
And so in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, as Jesus pronounces his woes on the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. In Acts chapter 15, Peter accuses the false Jewish teachers of putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither they nor their fathers have been able to bear. Their demands were crushing the people. Which is why the, the apostles in Acts 15 rejected that yoke, the yoke of these Jewish teachers, at the Jerusalem council. In Galatians chapter 5, we read it this morning, Paul is dealing with a similar error and he actually uses the language of Matthew 11 to reject that error. You have this group called the Judaizers who wanted to put Gentile Christians under their twisted and corrupted version of the law of Moses. And in urging these Gentile Christians to resist this error, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be burdened. Note that, that's Matthew 11 language. Do not be burdened with a yoke. That's also Matthew 11 language. Do not be burdened with a yoke of bondage. Paul is contrasting the yoke of these Judaizers with the yoke of Jesus, a, 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 a form of bondage. That yoke's a form of bondage, and he wants them to stand firm in their freedom. The yoke of a false moral system and man-made demands or rules as a condition of righteousness or a condition of salvation is bondage. But you need to know this has happened many times in the history of the church. This kind of error, this kind of yoke can creep into the church. So, for example, medieval Catholicism is an example of this. Medieval Catholicism created a yoke of bondage that the Reformation came to break people free from. They were put under this yoke of bondage, and Martin Luther and others came along and set them free and said, no, the yoke of Jesus is actually light and easy. It's not like what you've been experiencing where you're weighed down with all these man-made additions to God's word and, and these corrupt interpretations of God's word. But you know, there are some churches that do the same thing in various ways today. They enslave people with extra-biblical rules and regulations. These are false yokes people can put themselves under. Jesus calls us away from those yokes and commands us to take up his yoke because his yoke is light and easy. Indeed, I would say another way people do this is they put themselves under burdens that they were not designed to carry. They take responsibility for things that are not their responsibility. We need to remember it is not a sin to be finite. It is not a sin for a creature to be a creature, to have creaturely limitations. No one can do it all. No one can be it all. Set yourself free from that, from putting those kinds of expectations on yourself. Instead, you be you as a creature, and then Jesus can be Jesus to you. He can be the Savior. He can be the Redeemer. What's going to happen when you take off that yoke of false expectations and put on Jesus' yoke is you're going to find his yoke fits you just right. See, all these other yokes are soul-crushing. By contrast, the yoke of Jesus is life-giving. Only the yoke of Jesus fits us just right. Only the yoke of Jesus is light and easy. And really quickly here, I want to show you three ways the yoke of Jesus can be understood. To take up his yoke means to take up his cross. That's first. Taking, when Jesus says, take up my yoke, he's saying, take up my cross. 
take up the cross. He gets to that in Matthew chapter 16 where he's going to say all those who come after me must take up their cross in following me. The cross is our yoke. Now, it may seem crazy to say that the cross could be light and easy. How could it be light and easy to carry the cross? And I admit, it is not always pleasant to take up your cross because it means sacrifice. It means self-denial. It means death to self in various ways. But think about Jesus' cross. Hebrews 12 tells us Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. There is joy in living a cruciform life. It's actually freeing. It's actually fulfilling. The happiest man is always the one who gives himself away in love and service to others. Booker T. Washington said, those who do the most for others are happiest. Which is to say, those who carry the cross most fully, faithfully, and consistently are the happiest. And that's because Christ rewards such a life. There is joy in it. When you lose your life, when you lose your life in service and sacrifice and love, you find true life. Life abundant. You find that it is a light and easy yoke. In Matthew chapter 19, Peter says to Jesus, with a hint of self-pity, maybe more than a hint of self-pity, he says, we've left everything to follow you. Oh, look at us, Peter's saying. Have pity on us. We've given up everything for your sake, Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Does he underscore that self-pity? No. He does not leave them any room to feel sorry for themselves because of what they have given up. Instead, Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or children or lands for my name's sake will receive 100-fold in my kingdom. You never feel sorry for somebody who gets a 100-fold return on his investment. He makes some sacrifice and gets a 100-fold return back. You don't feel sorry for that kind of person. What Jesus is saying is the more you give for the sake of his kingdom, the more you get back. See, the life of the cross can never be a life of self-pity. Don't go around thinking of yourself as some kind of victim because you're a Christian and you have to do hard things. No, the yoke of Jesus is light and easy. It brings great reward. David Livingstone, the 19th century explorer and missionary to Africa, gave up a great deal to pave the way for the spread of the gospel in places far from his home in Africa. He gave up all kinds of comfort and wealth and opportunities, but this is what he said afterward, how he described his work. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made, spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, in the consciousness of doing good, in peace of mind, and in a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? He says, it is emphatically no sacrifice. It did not feel like a sacrifice to give all of those things up because there was so much joy in it. He says, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. 
Here's a man who says, I lived my whole life giving to Jesus, seeking to advance his kingdom. And he said, there's so much joy in it. It's like I never made a sacrifice. There is no greater joy than the yoke of the cross. Another way to look at the yoke of Jesus, it is his cross. It is also his commandments. It is the yoke of his law. 1 John 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. In Psalm 119, David says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. David found freedom in the yoke of God's law. Just as the Apostle John can say, if we love God, we're not going to find His commandments burdensome. There's great freedom in keeping God's law. Why is the yoke of Jesus' law light and easy? Sure, it may not always feel that way because we are still sinful. We might chafe against it in our sinfulness at times. But Jesus' commands are not burdensome because we were made for these commands. How God commands us to live matches how God designed us to live. We were made for God's law the same way a bird was made to fly in the air or the same way a fish was made to swim in the sea. His commands are for our good. When we keep God's commands, we are fulfilling God's design for us. That's why Psalm 19, David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. His commands are not burdensome. The more we love him, the less burdensome those commandments feel. In a final way, the yoke of Jesus is light and easy. When we put on the yoke of Jesus, we are actually yoked to Jesus himself. That's the question you have to ask. If I'm yoked, who am I sharing this yoke with? Well, the answer for the Christian is you're yoked up with Jesus. Jesus shares that yoke with us. That's right. Jesus wears the yoke too. He carries the yoke. We share the yoke with him. The language the rest of Scripture uses for this is union with Christ. We are united to Christ. And in the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, union with Christ is the center of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. Union with Christ is our salvation. What's it mean to be yoked with Christ? It means to be united to Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Well, it's like a marriage. A husband and wife are yoked together in the covenant of marriage, which means they share everything. They're united to one another. They're one with one another. We are yoked together with Jesus. We are united to him. We are one with him. It means he gives himself to us. He shares with us all that he is and all that he has. To be yoked with Christ is to be united with Christ. That means we share his status. It means our sins are forgiven. It means we're declared righteous. We are just as righteous in God's court of law as Jesus himself. Because we are yoked with him. We're united to him. To be yoked with Jesus means he shares his spirit and his new life with us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in you. Because you're united to him, you're yoked to him. He empowers you to obey. He gives you new desires and new abilities. And so if you are yoked to Jesus, he enables you to obey and he forgives you when you disobey. And what could be better than that? That is why his yoke is light and easy. Power to obey, forgiveness when you fail. That's what it means to wear the yoke of Jesus. You can find delight in his yoke. You can find joy in his cross. You can find joy in his commandments. 
Jesus is humble and gentle as he describes himself here. He continually, gently prods us along. He continually, gently pulls us forward as we share this yoke of the gospel so we continually grow in Christ's likeness. And so we can find joy in his cross and in his commands because we find joy in Jesus himself. And there's nothing that will help you understand yourself or your life better than this. C.S. Lewis once made the observation that with every choice we make, we turn into someone a little different than who we were before. So even small choices can have huge impacts, huge effects in our lives. Some people choose to wear a yoke that leads to destruction. The yoke they're wearing leads them to make destructive choices. Sometimes, even when we put on Jesus' yoke, we can feel stuck. You ever feel stuck in life, stuck with where you are in life, stuck in your sins, stuck in some sinful rut you can't seem to get out of? The yoke of Jesus means their hope. I love the way my friend Andrew Sandlin puts this. He says, sometimes we hear the frame, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Or once a porn addict, always a porn addict. But this is just unbelief. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to liberate us from any sin and to transform any sinner. Never bet against the gospel. You'll lose. Never bet against the gospel. You will lose. When God wants to save a sinner, he saves a sinner. When God wants to transform a sinner, he transforms a sinner and nothing can stop him. Nothing can stand in God's way. God's transforming grace is irresistible. Meaning it overcomes, it overpowers all resistance. Whatever we might throw up in its way, whatever sins or, or, or habits or patterns we seem stuck in, God smashes right through them on his way to making us like Christ. Never bet against the gospel. It's a sure way to lose. In the days of the early church, pagans were amazed by the powerful transformation that took place in the lives of Christians. Go look at 1 Corinthians 6. Paul lists a bunch of very stubborn sins, everything from drunkenness to homosexuality, and he says, such were some of you. But then you were washed and justified and sanctified in Jesus. You have been transformed. Pagans saw this transformation taking place in the lives of Christians, and they were amazed. And it made the church magnetic. It was attractive because Christians lived so differently. According to a, 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 a theologian of the time, Origen, Christians claimed we alone know how to live. We alone know how to live. And many pagans could not help but agree. Among all men, among all people groups, Christians alone know how to live. We alone know what human life is for. That it's for the glory of God and the good of God's kingdom. We alone know how to live in accord with Jesus' law and carrying his cross. You know why Christians alone know how to live? It's because we have found rest in Jesus. And we have taken up the yoke of Jesus. We alone know how to live because we have taken up the yoke of Jesus. If the yoke fits, wear it. And this yoke fits us perfectly. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.